I'd like to ask for your kind attention, some <clears throat> considerations of context for our Satipatthana exercises, establishment of mindfulness um, as the broad theme we're pursuing. Sometimes one forgets that in the midst of it. Uh, so it's, it's called Satipatthana, it's called mindfulness. <laughs> Makes you happy. Yeah. Um, you will recall that I have referred to something with the non-canonical term of shuttling or shuttle diplomacy. I would like to uh, deliver proof of the canonical existence of this particular practice. Uh, some of you may have harbored doubts on this issue. The idea is basically uh, the sober and humble acknowledgement that with all good intention and even with considerable skill and dedication in trying to focus the mind, still the mind, direct the mind, understand the mind, transform the mind, free the mind, somehow this process is not quite as linear as it sounds. Yeah? And it may entail that we move between differing particular themes of meditation, between different approaches of meditation. All of us usually have been attracted by one initial sort of glimpse of what a technique or a method can do for us. I certainly have. And I would expect something similar to be the case for you. And then we do this for a while and we find out that while this may be valuable, actually there's a lot of other things that can be done with equal usefulness, with equal benefit. And some of those things are more effective at addressing our particular life situation or our particular uh, hang-up. Or simply may make the mind more effectively quiet or more effectively understanding or more effectively... Uh, fluid, dexterous. So, uh, at least some of you will have heard me about differing ways we can lose the mind's flexibility, we can lose the mind's capacity to attend. Uh, traditionally, this is referred to in terms of the five hindrances, which uh, quickly named, you know, sense, desire, um, ill will, stupor, sloth, lethargy, numbness, and restlessness as the counterpart. And uh, then there's another particular pattern of this, which is more mental, it's, it's called agitation. And finally, doubt. So those are five really big areas in which traditional Buddhist psychology speaks of the things that stop you from having deep, collected states of mind. Uh, if you are under the impression that these five hindrances only happen to bad people, um, uh, no, they do not happen to bad people alone. It's basically that if, if your mind is not in jhana, then you will have very likely some form, however subtle, of hindrance going on. Yeah? That is precisely that which falls away when your mind has a deep state of stillness. Um, I'd like to leave those five hindrances and just look at differing ways how the mind's 
power to understand and attend can can be lost in in psychological terms. So one of the ways the mind can get lost is by losing fluidity. We get fixated on a thing. We freeze on an object. I'm sitting here, but my mind still is holding the image of how someone looked I spoke with half an hour ago. Everything has changed. That person is gone. I'm in a different situation. New persons are here. I'm doing something different. And yet, if I close my eyes, all I get to see is just how that person looked half an hour ago. Yeah? I have completely lost the flexibility or the fluidity of my mindfulness. So that's one way mindfulness can get lost, by losing its fluidity. It has lost its malleable quality of adapting, relating. You know, I relate to a memory rather than to what's happening. This is something very current. We often do that. We keep relating. Either we relate to old perceptions or we keep relating to perceptions rather than meeting the people behind the perceptions. In other words, we don't update our perceptions. We have spoken about perceptions and perceptions are necessary but treacherous. They always contain something fresh and new and they also contain something old and already known. And if we don't update them, they become increasingly unreliable and increasingly obsolete. So when we attend carefully, we keep updating perceptions. That's what we do with people we love. Because we love them, we give them lots of our attention. And because we give them lots of our attention, we keep updating our perceptions of them. That means when we asked what these people are like, we find it quite difficult to say in three adjectives what they are like. Because we keep looking at them, we keep seeing so many facets of them, it is very difficult for us to reduce these people to a simple adjective or even three adjectives. If you do not like somebody, um, if you're fixated on a particular perception of that somebody, then it's very easy to say what these people are like. Yeah? Three adjectives spring easily to mind. And we're quite convinced, you know, that's what it always was, definitely now. Can't imagine it any any different in the future, you know. And tack, 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 the caricature is done. You know, three, four rough strokes with the brush, and then you have this slightly caricaturized uh, figment of a person. So if you love somebody, you free them from the images you held, you hold. That's a powerful statement for me. When I began to understand that if you love somebody then that means you attend to them in a way that you keep freeing them from the perceptions you impose on them. You keep freeing them, releasing them out of the frames of reference you have created around them. And actually meet them. Free, as possibly free from your recognition maps, your frames, your concepts, and your, uh, you know, even below that, your percepts. So what else can get lost? How else can mindfulness get lost? One way of getting lost is mindfulness can lose um, the here and now, the famous here and now, which you may have heard me criticize as a concept. <laughs> that uh, famous here and now, that is a sort of a Buddhist paradise um, where nothing bad ever happens in that famous here and now, you know, you 
if you live there, basically, you're in paradise and it's completely unconstructed. It has nothing to do with past and your history. It is eternal. Um, and, you know, you're blissfully uh, basking in delight. You know, that's what's the secret Buddhist pie-in-the-sky uh, metaphysics make us believe, the metaphysics of the nowness. If I, if I can just keep doing the surfing at the crest of the wave, you know, just stay there. Christian tradition has this term of the nunc stans, the eternal now. Um, and as you know, this is not quite true. You see that I'm tongue-in-cheek here. Uh, but the here and now is a good recommendation, a good appeal to, to make it a reality check. Yeah. Let me get back into uh, what's happening here and now in this moment. Not the now at the bottom of the abyss, you know, here is the past and out of this comes the future and down here in this infinitely receding point is the now. Now, that's not what I mean. I just mean a sort of fairly, you know, rough, roughed out sort of nowness. That's good enough. You know, what's happening now in this particular sequence of if you want to be neurological about it, you could say anything that happens within about a second, usually our brain chunks into one situation. If you're a meditator, a second can be quite long. Yeah? If you're a usual scatterbrained, metropolitan, uh, time-pressured uh, person, <clears throat> like we sometimes all turn into, then you know a second is just flitting, it's gone. So the here and now I refer to that can be lost is a here and now of something fairly, something in which our brain chunks events into one moment. And just being able to get back to that here and now, to that one chunk, helps a lot. And if we're not being able to do that, then we may be lost in a reverie, we may be uh, apprehending a horror scenario. No. I don't know how it is for you. Sometimes I have moments where I think the worst possible scenario is the most likely to happen. You know, it's sort of a, a strange, weird type of logic that you always work with the, the kind of, you know, worst case scenarios, basically. And uh, that can take us away from the here and now, or we can live uh, with some slight that has happened three days ago that we just don't get over it that robs us our sleep, that uh, besets our, our thinking, our feeling. And we may completely be oblivious to the strawberries on the table, to uh, the chipmunk at the roadside, to uh, a friend that has come to visit. We just kind of look vacantly into empty space and dissociate back into that situation we were stuck with. What else can we lose? We can lose the body. So I may be so preoccupied, I may be so fascinated, I may be so focused, I may be so distracted or so dissociated that I lose this body's reality. Namely that it has back pain or that it needs to go to the loo or that it is freezing or that it is in an awkward position um, or that it is lacking sugar or uh, nourishment or that it quietly dehydrates without me taking notice of it. You know, there's many ways in which we can find ourselves losing our bodies. Whoever hasn't found himself 
kind of crumpled up in front of his or her screen. You know, in a sort of classic compensated question mark vulture <laughs> posture. Yeah? I know about this, I talk about this, and I still find myself doing this, you know, to be honest. You know. So we can lose the body quite easily. This is one obvious telltale sign that, uh, that the mindfulness has lost its dexterity, has lost its availability, has lost its fluidity, has lost its present-centeredness. Then, um, one way I can lose mindfulness is by um, losing the space. Yeah? I can suddenly find myself collapsed to one little corner of my world. So suddenly I have lost the spaciousness in my experience. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, I see. We have a visitor. It's not the bear, it's just the turkey, for those of you who don't see it. So, losing the space. Yeah. First of all, you have a big spacious meditation hall, and then it all is just a little turkey suddenly. You know? <laughs> yeah. for, now, for some situations, we call this focus, but sometimes we actually collapse. It's not focus. It is that this particular piece of experience seems to snatch all available attentional quality. All available attentional energy is kind of captured by this particular aspect. You know, you have a, a little thing here on your finger. And, you know, you don't really think about this little thing about your, on your finger a lot, but then you, you, you cut yourself a little bit and just about everything you touch seems to hit it, yeah? And you're kind of quite surprised how much attention this little piece of, of that little cut here, that little cleft in the, you know, where the nail begins at your index finger takes, you know? You dip it into washing water, there it is again. You're kind of reaching into the cupboard to get a new pair of socks, there it is again. You know, you're touching a piece of paper, there it is again. And it kind of, the mind keeps collapsing to that little thing. Or it collapses to just one feature. Sometimes we get besotted by things, yeah. You see something you just want. And then you kind of, doesn't go away anymore. Some things you want and you just kind of come, you want them, you either get them or you don't get them, and then <laughs> they go. <laughs> but some things just seem to stick. You know? And uh, you're collapsing, your attention collapses. How can I get this? How can I do this? How can this become mine? Or how can we, how can we do the same here? Sometimes it is a poignant experience that makes us lose all the goodness around it. You know, it's one little thing that irks us, hurts us, slights us, uh, is difficult, is unpleasant. You know, I come in and there's, you know, 30 nice people and there's this one guy, I'm not really quite sure where I'm at with him, yeah? And rather than thinking about the friendly, lovely, nice, uh, welcoming people, I keep kind of hovering in my attention around this guy. How can I, how can I convince him? How can I win him over? How can I make sure he, he thinks nice of me? Or How can I protect myself against this criticism? Or, yeah? 
And suddenly all those other people don't count anymore. And the only thing that counts is him or her or it. Something that I'm afraid of, something that I'm obsessed by, something that I'm uh, intrigued, besotted, uh, something that I experience as rebarbative or in, in some way as irksome. And it, it seems to mess up all the rest of my life, all the rest of my experience. The whole situation becomes unsafe because this particular thing puts me on edge. Yeah, I think that's the way to lose mindfulness. And finally, one way, one powerful way of losing mindfulness is losing the other. Yeah. If some part of your experience becomes so real that the other person your interlocutor, your your friend, your um, your companion, your fellow human being, your fellow mensch suddenly disappears. Yeah. Only your end of the field becomes real. You're incredibly sensitive, but unfortunately only to your own experiences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is one way that mindfulness can, can get lost. And I think it's good to think of this not just in terms of the five hindrances, although when fleshed out a bit, these five hindrances actually cover quite a bit of ground. Um, so think, sometimes we lose um, the fluidity in our mindfulness, we get stuck, fixated, we, we sink our, uh, our teeth into one particular aspect of an experience that we, we have a sort of a dogged, way of not moving on from this. We keep coming back. This is the defining feature. This is the dominant I montage my movie on. Yeah? Then um, losing uh, losing here and now, being somehow draw off adrift, reminiscing, fantasizing, dreaming, uh, very, very time-honored form of losing the present moment. And you know, losing the present moment sounds harmless. But actually, the wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Yeah. While mind-wandering is unavoidable, in fact, there is people who make a pretty convincing case that it is even indispensable. Yeah. But it is not permanently indispensable. And what we do know both from meditator, meditator's life, practice, and also from uh, neuropsychology, the wandering mind is not a happy mind. Yeah. So, if that mind wanders, then it generally, uh, not just is it not happy, but it also loses its power to act. That is really a big disadvantage. Not being able to act and engage is really depriving us. The negative consequences of this will be always forms of helplessness, forms of isolation, forms of distancing, forms of feeling at the victimized. Yeah. Being wandered, wandering off, dissociated mind is always a powerless mind. Yeah. You're always feeling helpless. You're always feeling out there. You're always feeling at the a distance at a loss to actually truly engage. And there's a few other disadvantages. You you miss out on enjoyment if you miss, you know, the here and now. 
You miss out on compassion. You miss out on the possibility of transcendence because you can only transcend where you're actually at. You can't transcend from a distance. Um, you miss out on learning because true learning doesn't actually happen from sort of a cognitive removed parallel existence in a safe universe somewhere looking down onto, onto your planet. Uh, true learning actually happens with your hands in the muck, feeling it, holding it, sensing it, reverberating with the primary layer of immediate experience. So there are many disadvantages of not being in the here and now. It's not just sort of a kind of a Buddhist duty to be present-centered. We miss out on a, in a big way. If we're not here and if we're not in that present moment, we're missing out on a big way. And this generally, as a result, discontent, disappointment, sense of impotence, feeling victims, feeling not really being part of, alienation, classic result of missing the present moment. Things are kind of flitting by and you're not really part of it. Nobody really, you feel connected, nothing really you feel connected to. Losing the body is, I think, obvious. Losing the space, losing the other. Those are good qualities to kind of check in as a sort of as part of Dhammanupassana practice. If you allow me to tack this little list onto the, as a non-canonical appendage to the Dhammas to be contemplated in Dhammanupassana, just kind of check in what does this mindfulness, where might it be if it is not available? Yeah? Is it stuck somewhere? Is it drifting off somewhere? Is it lost somewhere? Is it contracted somewhere? So let me go to our little text. It's a wonderful little piece. <clears throat> I would like to read it and uh, explain as good as I can. Uh, the, the text is called The Bhikkhuni's Quarter. That's the nun's quarter. Uh, it's in the great book, in the Mahavaka of the Samyutta Nikaya. I'll put a note with the reference for the aficionados and aficionadas amongst you later on the board. Bikuni's quarter, I'm reading. Then in the morning, the venerable Ananda dressed and taking bowl and robe, he approached the Bikuni's quarters and sat down in a, on an appointed seat. A number of Bikunis approached the venerable Ananda, paid homage to him and sat down to one side and said to him, here, Venerable Ananda, a number of bhikkhunis, dwelling with their minds well established in the four establishments of mindfulness, perceive successively loftier stages of distinction. Um, so these nuns, basically having a visit from Venerable Ananda, who is a, a patron of the nuns, is famous for having been a friend of the nuns, having been accused later on of having brought about the nuns' order by some of his less enlightened um, contemporaries, contemporaries when the Buddha died. Um, Ananda, obviously, before he goes for alms round, checked in on the nuns. And these nuns, quite confident, were meditators and they let him know 
that they were well established in the four Satipatthanas and the result of being well established that they perceive successful loftier stages of distinction, which is in very interesting terms. It means they have insights, they have profound and increasing insights, and they have no qualms letting Ananda know this case. Yeah? And Ananda, <clears throat> affirmative, so it is, sisters, so it is. It may be expected of anyone, sisters, whether bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, who dwells with a mind well established in the four establishments of mindfulness, that such a one will perceive successively loftier stages of distinction. Uh, <clears throat> story goes on, instructed, exhorted, inspired, and gladdened those bhikkhunis with a Dhamma talk, after which he rose from his seat and left. Left to Savati to get some mom's food, and... Uh, turning home to the Buddha and uh, explaining to him what happened. Yeah. <clears throat> then the Buddha says, one has to imagine him here nodding, nodding in approval. So it is, Ananda, so it is. It may be expected of anyone, Ananda, whether bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, uh, who dwells with a mind established in the four establishments of mindfulness, that they will perceive successively loftier stages of distinction. What for? Here, Ananda uh, a bhikkhu dwells contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. While contemplating the body, now, it's get, now it gets interesting, while contemplating the body in the body, there arises in him, based on the body, either fever in the body or sluggishness of mind, or the mind is distracted outwardly. This is an interesting and quite... Uh, touching thing, isn't it? One always reads that these people just sit at the feet of the Buddha, they listen to a little talk about impermanence or about the Four Noble Truths, and then bang, 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 you know, stream entry, possibly, Sakadagabi, Anagamita, and then freedom. At the end of the talk, they have understood, you know, what arises as to cease, uh, they've done away with the intoxications, and they have completed what they have gone forth from home to homelessness to accomplish. And you think, well, actually, I've heard about the Nietzsche and the Four Noble Truths, and somehow this bang, bang, bang part is still missing. <laughs> yeah? So, in this case here, we are told that somebody, obviously not just gets enlightened, but he or she practices ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, um, having done away with covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world, and yet, despite such lofty intentions and such... Uh, fine practice in the contemplation of body suddenly there arises a fever or bodily sluggishness or a distraction of mind which is quite reassuring this isn't just a, a disease of our time you know it's easy to put that down to tv adverts or just you know deficiencies in your socialization or or not having access to the proper meditation teachings or so. But already in the presence of the Buddha and in the days of the Buddha, it happened to people, and here the Buddha even speaks of this, that hindrances occur. That fever in the body that is referred to is generally a form of desire. The word is heat, parilaha, and it means, it can mean anything from a... Um, from a you know a heat flush to to uh, an attack of sense desire yeah. that has its bodily manifestations uh, or sluggishness of mind. In other words, the famous lethargy, yeah, the the Tibetan sinking mind, yeah, this kind of funnel feeling. You remember 
kind of you place this here and you establish this mindfulness and then instead of rising up and establishing equipoise and a sort of buoyancy of mind it does the others it just kind of funnels in a sort of sucking down movement you know i congratulate you if you've never been there if you <laughs> if you've been there you probably recognize the energetic experience is kind of <laughs> so this sluggishness of minds or the distraction the outward distraction you know, the mind is distracted outwardly and now the buddha's rem the buddha's uh, amazing suggestion you know as a good Theravada Buddhist, you would now expect <clears throat> a, f a stern exhortation, you know, to rouse will, to do away with that problem, to uh, bring up preciousness of human life, to uh, think of the Aryans and pull yourself together to uh, uh, take on the right striving, you know, Samma Padhana, and overcome with the help of your effort with the help of your will with the help of your faith these hindrances that's what one would expect sort of from contextual reading but instead to our uh, almost concern we find uh, the buddha's suggestion then the practitioner should direct his or her mind towards some inspiring sign yeah pasadanye nimite remember nimita the word we had uh, a week ago or so, um, again makes an appearance here. And this inspiring sign is not in any way relegated to, say, the three refuges or the qualities of the Buddha. No, nothing. The term actually used uh, could be anything that gives rise to gladness. Yeah? Anything that gives rise to gladness and no further restrictions are made. Yeah? You could be quite canonical uh, and interpret this as giving rise to, say, Carter and Stevens ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing in this text that would contradict this particular possible interpretation. Um, the the sub-commentary is quite interesting. It says, uh, obviously, you know, um, this um, is a bit nervous about this, and says, um, you know, what really what is really meant is... Uh, mm, it's something. Uh, it's something inspiring. Yeah, something um, uh, to. It's it's something that you you think about the Buddha or something that inspires confidence. Yeah, as, as an object of faith. So. He obviously is a little bit nervous about the liberality of this uh, injunction here, and um, then the the recommendation continues when. He or she directs his or her mind towards some inspiring sign, gladness is born. When they are gladdened, rapture is born. When the mind is uplifted by rapture, the body becomes tranquil. One tranquil in body experiences happiness. Then the mind of one who is happy becomes unified. She reflects thus, the purpose for the sake of which I directed my mind has been achieved. Let me now withdraw it from that sign. So she withdraws the mind and does not think or examine. She understands without thought or examination, internally mindful, I am happy. So we were quite clearly, uh, while practicing Satipatthana and meeting uh, condition of lack of energy or distraction or unpleasant uh, 
or or uh, in an unskillful way energized uh, bodily state, we are encouraged to just take up something that makes this mind glad. And we are encouraged to hold this until some of that gladness actually comes in and that gladness um, is allowed to permeate our body and our being until a quality of piti is born, a quality of energized interest is born. Here, rapture sounds a bit much. There's many forms of piti, you know, at the, at the uh, mundane end of the spectrum. Piti is basically the moment when what you attend to does no longer need your continual moving towards. Piti is the moment when the object you intend to attend to seems to fetch you, when it seems to draw you, when there is some traction. So interest, something holds interest for you and you don't need to keep putting your mind on it. It has now enough of a pull for you to actually stay with it. Yeah, that's the mundane end of the PT experience. The wilder shore of PT experiences tend to have energetic dimensions, uh, anything from pleasant tingling up to spine till uh, the feeling, nauseating feeling of you know your your cranium being lifted off or something like that. Yeah, people have a variety of uh, sometimes dramatic experiences. Sometimes they are in the pleasant realm, and sometimes they are they can be even unpleasant. Visuddhimagga, again, if you're curious, has a long list on differing sorts of PT. Some of them are uh, nauseating even. Yeah. But usually PT is a pleasant experience. It, is, it has an energetic dimension. At its mildest, it is uh, the mental quality of interest, meaning that I do not need to put in effort into focusing on an object. It's the object that seems to invite uh, and pull even slightly... <coughs> draw my uh, attention. Yeah. Then it continues, gladness, rapture, uh, uplifted by rapture, the body. So we were with the mind and now the body becomes tranquil because we actually experience pity. And then from the tranquility of the body, so the kaya sankara getting more still, there is an intrinsic type of pleasure growing out of this. So the tranquilized body as an object of um, pleasure. That is an interesting one. No word of renunciation so far, no word of contemplating the unattractive, no word of the danger of attachment, you know, kind of unabashed encouragement to generate gladness, um, rapture, tranquility of body, and a happiness of mind that is based on the tranquility of body. This is a sequence that is occurring a number of times. It is unfortunately one of the types of dependent arising that is a lot less famous than the other type of dependent arising who has made it into the Theravada charts of, you know, the 12 link Lidana. Yeah. This is a, a little snippet of a, a passage of dependent arising that leads to a concentrated, a happy and uh, in some forms of this sequence also a, a liberated mind. And I believe this would deserve a lot more popularity than it traditionally has received. But uh, it's here. You know, just, just a little buried. If you bother to dig it up, you will find it easily. The mind w of one who is happy becomes unified. So the very simple connections 
between uh, happiness of mind and unification of mind, between sukha, uh, a citta that is, that is sweetened through sukha, and the process of collectedness. Yeah? Samadahati means to collect, to get, gather things together. The, the verb that is at the root of the term samadhi means to collect, to gather. Yeah. The English word gather, I believe, is quite nice. You, this kind of movement, yeah? You, and it doesn't dissipate anymore. Our story continues. Oh, um, the, the sub-commentary helpfully uh, reviews this process and makes a little analogy. It says, um, So we are taught we want to practice Satipatthana, we don't have the energy, we take up an object that gives rise to confidence and some, um, some inspiration. And then with this we, we, we gladden the mind, we energize the mind, we, we, we tranquilize the body, we allow that the tranquilized body experiences happiness, we allow that the happiness of the mind allows for unification. And then the exercise is finished. He reflects thus, for the sake for which I'd, uh, of which I directed my mind has been achieved, let me now withdraw it from that particular inspiring sign. <clears throat> so he or she withdraws the mind and does not think or examine. He or she understands without thought or examination, internally mindful, I am happy. The same applies then to the same pattern then applies when we contemplate Vedana, when we contemplate feeling tone in feeling tone. Um, again, the, the recommendation when we uh, when the when the sluggishness occurs or the fever of body or the distractions, we go to the inspiring sign, and after a while we return and um, leave that particular inspiring sign. Um, it is in such a way, Ananda, that there is development by direction. So he goes through the four Satipatthanas, and when this pattern of sluggishness or fever or distraction occurs, we are encouraged for all of the Satipatthanas to find something inspiring that we uh, can uplift the mind with. And that is what the Buddha calls directed meditation, yeah? Panidaya Bhavana, which is an interesting one. Panidaya Bhavana, directed meditation. I'm not aware that this term occurs anywhere else. It has not become famous. Um, and now, Ananda, there is the development without direction. Not directing his mind outwardly, a bhikkhu understands, my mind is not directed outwardly. Then he understands, it is unconstricted after and before, liberated, undirected. Then he further understands, I dwell contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, I am happy. And the sub-commentary suggests <coughs> that we understand the uh, relationship of these two types of practice like this. There is a man <coughs> carrying sugarcane. That's the... And after a while he's tired, he sets down his... Um, I forgot what it is in English. A rack, yeah, where you would carry the cane on. He sets down his rack, takes a break, and eats one of the sugar one of the sugar canes. Yeah, 
Have you ever eaten sugarcane in Asia? It's very nice. You chop it and then you chew it. It's a rather sort of dental experience. Yeah. Uh, it takes a lot of chewing and biting till you get at that sugar, but it's quite nice. It has an immediately sweet flavor and so people in Thailand or probably in South America or wherever sugarcane grows here in this country, there must be somewhere sugarcane is grown. Uh, this is how it works. You, know, you eat, you can chew it raw. So our man who has a heavy load carries it, wants to deliver this load, takes a break, and rather than continuing on this path, he just stops and eats a little sugarcane. Yeah, this is our inspiring sign. And then after having done this little break, he kind of shoulders his load again and marches on, strengthened by his inspired sign. This is what our sub-commentary tells us, the, the illustrator of core meaning, as his name is. Then the Buddha <coughs> repeats this <coughs> again for the four Santipatthanas. Yeah? I re read uh, the second one, not directing his mind outwardly, a bhikkhu understands my mind is not directed outwardly. Then he understands it is unconstricted before and after, liberated, undirected. Then he further understands I dwell contemplating feelings in feelings, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, I am happy. I really like that little sentence there. I am happy. So, yeah, at the end, um, the Buddha says, Thus, Ananda, I have taught the development by direction. I have taught the development without direction. Whatever should be done, Ananda, by a compassionate teacher, out of compassion for his disciples, desiring their welfare, that I have done for you. <clears throat> And then the grand statement, these are the feet of trees, Ananda, these are empty huts, meditate, Ananda, do not be negligent, lest you regret it later. This is our instruction to you. And Ananda, once more elated, um, got up and uh, was pleased with the Buddha's statement. Uh, I believe a wonderful little nugget from the Satipatthana uh, Samyutta, outlining in very placid ways, this movement from a particular bigger meditation theme, let's say contemplating body, contemplating feelings, contemplating uh, chitta, mind states, contemplating various dhammas, and the acknowledgement that sometimes we just don't have to choose. Sometimes we run out of steam. Sometimes the resources aren't there. So that we need to gladden the mind, to inspire the mind with something and now your homework comes in with something that you have to find. Preferably not Carter's and Stevens ice cream, but I guess you get the gist that this is something that you know to have an inspiring effect onto your heart. Maybe this is a, maybe you recall for a moment what help you have received. Maybe you recall your own efforts, how much you have given up for something, or how much goodness you have cultivated by practicing. Maybe you recall the qualities of the Buddha. Maybe you recall an image. Maybe you recall people who have helped you, or who have touched you, or who, who, who are precious to you. Maybe you recall a place that is particularly charged or imbued with uh, with a sense of sacredness. 
as you see, the texts do not stipulate uh, what this is allowed to be or what this is not allowed to be, despite a few commentarial uh, uh, attempts to rein that in. Yeah? So uh, look, wonder for yourself, what could that be for me? You know, do I have such an image? Many of us have a, have a connection to iconography. So um, you have com complete and canonical um, encouragement to leave your primary meditation object and bring something up that helps you still the mind, inspire the mind, gladden the mind. Uh, and then preferably not forget the primary object. Yeah, Don't eat all the sugar cane right then and there, but you know, you do that for the sake of marching on with your particular sugarcane load. Good. Thank you for your attention. Let us sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.